everything hurts. It feels as though Mina's entire body is one massive bruise. She's lying on her back, half covered in infernal powder, she realises. Barrel lids have been splintered beneath her by the force of the blows from the creature of wind and ice that had been Umajukti, or whatever it was that Jukti had turned into. Her thoughts turn to the ring, clearly an artefact of incredible power. But before she has time to drag herself to her feet, the blank steel masks of the cultists appear above her, unblinking green glass lenses gazing down at her, surrounding her. We showed those pipe runners, didn't we? She croaks feebly. Go us! The cultists part, and the revered one steps into the circle. So, this is the one who has gazed on sights forbidden, who has transgressed against us. Mina forces herself up to her elbows. She can see Barbican nearby, surrounded by a small squad of cultists. She's been in better spots. And of course, she cannot forget that these are the same bloodthirsty fanatics that blew up the Ancrin Monastery, killing untold innocents. But she refuses to give in to fear. Instead, defiance flares. That's a bit harsh. In my defence, I did what I did to help you. You heard what Jukti was planning to do. She wanted to destroy us all. And if I hadn't warned you or helped you fight her, she probably would have succeeded. You are not a machine outsider. My brother Cogs informed me this is not the first time you have crossed our holy purpose. And now, by deception and by stealth, you have infiltrated the most sacred heart of the great machine, a place none but the most anointed may venture. A place where interlopers are punished by death. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Lina Montessario, disguised as a cultist, joined the machine cultists in a final desperate battle against Uma Jukti and her pipe-runners for control of the explosives stashed beneath the great machine, with the entire city forfeit if she failed. Miraculously, disaster was averted and the pipe-runners were defeated. But in the process, Mina's disguise was lost and now she's wounded, alone and surrounded by enemies. Defiance, fueled by fear, blossoms into full-blown outrage. Death! Death is my reward for saving all your skins 
and for saving the great machine. In case you hadn't noticed, oh revered one, that device up there that you value so highly is only in one piece because of me. I did what neither you nor any of your flunkies could. I prevented the greatest disaster in the history of this city, and I killed the woman who tripped you all. And in case you had forgotten, it was you that let that viper into your secret, sacred place. What, she gets to fill it with high explosives intended to destroy you all and gets a pass? And when I come here to save you all, I get executed? You only have a sacred heart, a holy purpose, because of me. Mina realises she's risen to her feet, fists bald, standing on tiptoes to stare into the revered one's implacable eye lenses. The revered one's retinue have closed in, weapons drawn. There is a long pause, during which nobody moves. Finally, the voice of the machine speaks. Scripture states, let data be your path. Let logic be your guide. Our holy doctrine forbids all who would trespass in this sacred place. And yet, it is true that exceptions have been made in the past. Unwise exceptions, it transpires. It is equally true that our order owes you a debt. Without your intervention, there is a high probability that the most hallowed machine would have been damaged, perhaps even destroyed. The divine work of the engineers would have been irrevocably undone. Though you are not of the machine, neither are you its foe. For your services to the machine, I shall stay execution. You are free to go, at a price. But cross us again, and nothing shall protect you from our righteous vengeance. Mina takes a step back and beckons Barbican to her. Her heart is hammering, but she does her best to retain at least an outer appearance of calm. Dexterous fingers move over the damaged pistons and dented bodywork, and Mina finds the familiar motions of repair somehow soothing. As she works, there is a growing certainty in her mind. Whoever built the great machine? It wasn't the dwarven engineers that built the city and the underpipes. She has seen enough of their handiwork by now to know it by sight, even if a lot of it surpasses her skill. But the great machine is an order of magnitude more complex and esoteric than anything she has ever seen. She's not even sure it's of this world. In fact, if her theory about the vast hall being in some extra-dimensional space is correct, it's possible that even now they stand in some other plane of existence, a place where such artifice is possible, perhaps even commonplace. She keeps her thoughts to herself. As she checks Barbican over, she scowls back at the cult leader. At a price? What's that supposed to mean? The voice of the machine draws himself up to his full height. You will complete a mission for the glory of the machine. We require access to one of the centres of decadent power in the city above, and to date every attempt to infiltrate has been thwarted. Security is tight, but you, as a topsider, and one skilled in infiltration, you will provide it for us, and within 48 hours. Failure to carry out this mission successfully will result in your immediate execution. Are those terms clear? 
Mina, of course, has absolutely no intention of providing these madmen with another terrorist target, but plays along for now. I can do that. Where do you need to get into? We've learned of a high society event that will serve as a perfect platform for our inspirational message. Mina experiences an inexplicable, almost prescient shiver of dread. Um, and what sort of event would that be? A wedding. A wedding scheduled in three days between two of the greatest houses in the city. You will provide us access to the palace of House Tereth. And once again, success for Mina turns into, oh shit, what now? Well played, Mythic. Well played. Things started off pretty tame. No chaos, no interrupts, and I got a no in response to my first and most important question, do the cultists attack? Admittedly, they didn't see her as an ally, but Mythic also told me that she wasn't going to be kept prisoner either. Mina was free. Well, that seemed just a little bit too easy, and so I asked a follow-up question. Is there a quid pro quo? Were the cultists so grateful that they were going to free her and ask for nothing in return? Well, of course, it turned out they did want something. And the event that I drew when I asked what that thing was, was Celebrate Opulence. Now that really left me scratching my head. What on earth did that mean in context? Did they want Mina to go from door to door? asking homeowners if they'd heard the good news about their mechanical saviour. Hmm. Sometimes, when I'm struggling a bit with a prompt, I plug the mythic phrase into Google to see what comes up. And in this case, what I got, second entry down, was something that absolutely triggered an idea. An advert for a fabulous party mansion available to hire for prestige special occasions. The other thing I sometimes do when a prompt is a bit tricky is to take a look at my current thread and character list. It's a great idea for story coherence to try and tie hanging plot threads together whenever you get the opportunity. And of course, there was one dangling thread that seemed too good to pass up. One that placed Mina in double peril. And just because extra jeopardy is always fun, I asked if the machine cult knew who Mina was or if they knew about the underpipe's entrance to the palace that Mina had discovered on her last trip. Well, no, and exceptional no. They clearly believe Mina is just a sneaky troublemaker, and that there is no route into the palace from below. I also asked if they had any additional leverage. Had they captured Cadmus, perhaps, or did they have some other dastardly plan to bend Mina to their will? No, as it turned out. They just expect her to do what they tell her. Stupid, stupid machine cultists. Finally, I had been intrigued for a while about the whole issue of the horn of the machine being bigger on the inside and what that implied. And so I asked whether Mina thought the machine had been built by the dwarves of this world, and no response I got opens up some interesting possibilities. Anyhow, this scene has left Mina with some interesting choices. She still needs to save Cadmus and discover the source of the infernal powder and deal with the fact that a terrorist organisation is sitting on 250 tonnes of high explosives. And, of course, we now have this latest challenge. Prevent a terrorist attack on her own wedding. The clock is ticking. This is a good opportunity to update the mythic lists. We can get rid of neutralise the infernal powder, I think, and replace that with find the source of the infernal powder. 
I'm going to add Rescue Cadmus, as that seems a pretty obvious omission, but I don't think I need to add anything further for the terrorist attack on the wedding. The existing thread entry, The Wedding, covers that. I'm going to remove the pipe runners as a character. They're done, I think. And finally, I think I'm also going to add the voice of the machine as a named NPC. Feels like he's earned his spot. Well, that's it. Chaos goes up to four. Let's see what Mina does next. The journey back to the Piperunner's camp and to Cadmus seems ten times longer than the journey to the hall. Mina's footsteps seem to drag, a simultaneous desperation to reach the camp and a dread of what she will find when she gets there. The hundred worst-case scenarios play out in her mind, each more awful and graphic than the last. In a desperate bid to stave off the debilitating fear, she attempts to focus on her final exchanges with the voice of the machine. Under close guard, she had been prevented from retrieving the ring, of course. She can only hope that in the aftermath of the battle, it has been lost or forgotten. She dreads to think of an artifact of that power in the hands of a madman like the voice. But a small smile tugs at Mina's lips as she recalls asking him directly where the infernal powder came from. That had caught him off guard. That is none of your concern. He had snapped, but the answer had told her more than the voice had intended to tell. He knew of that she was certain. And when she had followed up by asking for an escort to rescue Cadmus from what was left of the pipe runners, the voice had been off balance, and so more inclined to agree. She is reminded of the first time she truly felt her father saw her, saw the first signs of the person she would turn out to be. She had walked into his study one morning, just a week shy of five years old. I'd like an elephant for my birthday, she'd announced. He'd looked up from his piles of papers with a smile and told her kindly, but plainly, that an elephant was out of the question. She'd begged, she'd pleaded, she'd promised to take it for walks and give it dinner every day, but to no avail. Her father was sympathetic, but resolute. No elephant. At last, she'd conceded defeat. Her father was right, an elephant was a big commitment, and very expensive, and where would they even keep it? Sadly, she'd asked, Well, if I can't have an elephant, could I have a puppy instead? Sure enough, on her birthday, a bouncing ball of waggy-tailed fluff had duly arrived and was greeted with untrammeled joy. You're just what I've always wanted, she'd cried, hugging the wriggly, licky little thing tight. Apart from the elephant, of course, her father had noted. Mina had fixed him with a fairly disappointed look. Daddy, I never wanted an elephant. But, with infinite patience, Mina had explained, If I'd asked for a puppy, I'd have got a gerbil. The mixture of outrage, amusement and pride on her father's face still brings a happy tear to her eye, even here, even now. Those tears are followed by more. First, tears of relief upon finding Cadmus alive and unscathed, and then bitter ones upon being shown where Antiope fell, still surrounded by the corpses of a score of pipe runners. She saved my life, Cadmus explains, a comforting arm around Mina's shoulders. She took on and killed more of them than I would have thought possible for any single fighter. She was magnificent. Though she could not free me, she held Uma and her followers' attention long enough to keep me safe. 
and once Jukti was forced to leave mid-battle, she very nearly succeeded in carving her way through them all single-handed. A heroic death, and her finest battle. Mina blinks the tears away, swallowing down the guilt she feels. Despite Cadmus's words, she knows the truth of it. She sent Antiope to her doom. Yet another death on her conscience. And the worst of it is, if she'd known the outcome in advance, she'd probably do the same again. A cold, moral arithmetic. Antiope's life for Cadmus. But there's no time for self-recrimination. Right now, they have a catastrophe to avert. Well, first off, hooray! Cadmus is safe and not tortured and skinless. Phew. Secondly, I am sorry to lose Antiope. I rather liked her. Still, she did go out in style. Well, we got a little peek into Mina's history here. Way back in Session Zero, I stated the following goals for this game. To discover an exciting new world, to become entangled in death-defying sweeping plots, and to follow my character's internal journey of growth and change along the way. Well, I think there's been a fair bit of Goals 1 and 2 delivered, but perhaps a little bit less of Goal 3. And so it's nice to do a little bit of internal exploration, uncovering what makes her tick. As well as unresolved feelings over her father's death, guilt is clearly a big factor, as we saw in her reaction to the fire in the spot, and now, of course, to Antiope's death. Guilt and self-recrimination, but suppressed and also unresolved. Perhaps there's a closer link between that aspect of her character and her father's death than I'd realised. Until Mina confronts the flaw in her worldview, she cannot progress. To level up in character terms rather than mechanical ones, she needs to be confronted with irrefutable evidence that her model of the world is broken. The set of views that have carried her so far, which have worked to her up until this point, need to be confronted with evidence that they are imperfect and can carry her no further. That point of self-confrontation and subsequent worldview rebuilding may lie somewhere in Mina's future. If, of course, the vagaries of the mythic GM emulator allow for it. But, for now, it's useful to explore where her personality comes from, what her flaw is, and how it came to be. If all this story-crafting theory sounds a little bit insightful or educated, well, that's probably because I didn't come up with any of it. A little while back, I read a phenomenal book by Will Storr called The Science of Storytelling, a book I unreservedly recommend to everyone with the same fervour that I recommend Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Not only is the central message brilliant and instinctively true, but it's just packed with fascinating and surprising and thought-provoking detail about how humans work and how that affects the stories that they tell. I've been shamelessly nabbing wonderful ideas from this book over several episodes, both to feed into the way I'm telling this story and to flesh out some of the content I'm providing in the commentary sections. I discovered the canoe personality model in this book, for example, though of course the RPG application is my own interpretation. The flaw that I described in Mina's worldview is a central theme of Storr's book. Quote, At the start of a story, we'll often meet a protagonist who is flawed in some closely defined way. The mistakes they're making about the world will help us empathise with them, will warm to their vulnerability, will become emotionally engaged in their struggle, 
and when the dramatic events of the plot coax them to change, we'll root for them. The problem is, in fiction and in life, changing who we are is hard. The insights that we've learned from neuroscience and psychology begin to show us exactly why it's hard. Our flaws, especially the mistakes we make about the human world and how to live successfully within it, are not simply ideas about this and that which we can identify easily and choose to shrug off. They're built right into our hallucinated models. Our flaws form part of our perception of our experience of reality, and this makes them largely invisible to us. Correcting our flaws means, first of all, managing the task of actually seeing them. When challenged, we often respond by refusing to accept our flaws exist at all. People accuse us of being in denial, and of course we are, because we literally can't see them. When we can see them, they all too often appear not as flaws at all, but as virtues. The mythologist, Joseph Campbell, identified a common plot moment in which protagonists refuse the call of a story, and this is often why. Identifying and accepting our flaws and then changing who we are means breaking down the very structure of our reality before rebuilding it in a new and improved form. This is not easy. It's painful and disturbing. We'll often fight with all we have to resist this kind of profound change, and this is why we call those who manage it heroes. Nobody is right about everything. Nevertheless, the storytelling brain wants to sell us the illusion that we are. Think about the people closest to you. There won't be a soul among them with whom you've never disagreed. You know that she's slightly wrong about that, and he's got that wrong, and don't get her started on that. The further you travel from those you admire, the more wrong people become, until the only conclusion you're left with is that entire tranches of the human population are stupid, evil, or insane which leaves you the single living human who's right about everything, the perfect point of light, clarity and genius who burns with godlike luminescence at the centre of the universe. Oh, hang on, that can't be right. You must be wrong about something. And so you go on a hunt. You count off your most precious beliefs, the ones that really matter to you, one by one. You're not wrong about that, and you're not wrong about that, and you're certainly not wrong about that, or that, or that, or that insidious thing about your biases, errors and prejudices is that they appear real to you. It feels as if everyone else is biased and it's only you that sees the reality as it actually is. Psychologists call this naive realism. Because reality seems clear and obvious and self-evident to you, those who claim to see it differently must be idiots or lying or morally derelict characters we meet at the start of a story are, like most of us, living just like this, in a state of profound naivety about how partial and warped their hallucination of reality has become. They're wrong. They don't know they're wrong, but they're about to find out. End quote. I just love this, both in how it pertains to storytelling in general, and Mina's story in particular, but I particularly love it because of how it makes me think of my own worldview and that of those around me, and that of all those cretins and idiots who don't agree with me. Right, enough literary and psychological flights of fancy. It's time to remove Rescue Cadmus from the threads list and Antiope, sadly, from the character list. And to reduce chaos to three, the road goes ever on and on, 
where will it take us next? I'm having some trouble keeping up, Cadmus confesses, taking a sip of his tea. It is a lot to take in. The pair sit in the rookery, with just a few sticks of furniture retrieved from Bina's extra-dimensional box. Barbican stands to one side with the teapot in hand. Mina nods, placing her empty cup next to her retrieved pistol on the table. She's had some time on their trek back to the city's surface to describe the events and revelations of her journey following their separation. For me, too. But right now, we have a more immediate problem to worry about before we can deal with the infernal powder or the cult or the visitor or any of that. The wedding, Cadmus agrees. Remind me. What's to stop you from just going to House Tareth's head of security and alerting him to the danger? Or, better yet, why not go to the Bluecoats? Tell them where they can find the list of vipers that bombed the monastery, and let them deal with them. Mina sighs. Believe me, I am sorely tempted, particularly by the Bluecoats idea. But think about it, Cadmus. That viper's nest down there is sitting on more infernal powder than I knew even existed. Even if we could convince the Bluecoats and have them deploy, in numbers, into the underpipes in time, who can say what the cult would do if backed into a corner? Better oblivion than suffer the tyranny of the flesh, the voice said. And you didn't see them, Cadmus. They really are crazy enough to do it. Besides, this is my mess. I need to deal with it. She brushes aside Cadmus's attempt to protest at this. No, no, if we are going to avert atrocity and take down the cult of the machine, I think this is going to require a more delicate touch. And I think I have an idea of how to do just that. There is a fairly significant downside, I'm afraid. Oh? Cadmus looks concerned. What's that? I think I'm going to have to get married... Break out the confetti and bunting. It seems the wedding is back on. Cousin Alexis will be pleased. We discussed character flaws previously, and I'm starting to see what Mina's might be. Guilt at getting other people hurt, as well as externally or self-imposed isolation, have led her to a place where she's incredibly self-reliant. So self-reliant, in fact, that she fails to see when asking for help might be appropriate. It's my mess, and I need to fix it is an understandable attitude, but potentially a self-destructive one. Let's hope this plan, whatever it is, doesn't blow up in Mina's face. And I do mean, whatever it is. At this point, I really only have the vaguest idea myself. It's going to be interesting to find out. Of course, I'm sure Mythic will have plenty to say about whatever Mina attempts to put in place, and we've seen before how well her plans usually work out. This short scene, for a change, had next to no mythic interaction. The scene wasn't altered, and so I simply asked if the cultists remained with Mina, and when they didn't, I felt comfortable relocating her back to her HQ. That will allow her a long rest and a chance to set whatever her plan is in motion. I think we're about to go into a heist movie montage scene. I'm thinking of doing something in the background here. The idea of countdown clocks is common in Powered by the Apocalypse games, things like Apocalypse World, Dungeon World, and Blades in the Dark, for example. The idea is pretty simple. A clock is created, with a number of segments, depending on the duration or complexity of the countdown, and then those get checked off as the countdown progresses. In this case, I want a countdown towards a bad outcome, a danger clock. 
we have a terrorist group intent on bombing a wedding, and so a bad outcome of a bomb goes off is what will happen if the clock fills up. If too much time is wasted, or if Mina does something to alert the cultists to potential duplicity, the clock will advance, and even if the wedding is cancelled, that doesn't mean the danger is over. In fact, that will immediately fill the clock, and the cultists will simply blow someone or something else up. This clock is intended as a tool to inject some urgency into our next several scenes. Let's see how that plays out in practice. Next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.